So can I just start though by praying and just asking for God's help as we consider this. Father, we do thank you so much for your spirit. We thank you that you are at work in the world even when we don't understand how or why. Father, we thank you for your care and compassion for every individual caught up in this horrible situation, for your long history of patience and love and compassion towards all of the people who live in this part of the world and all the people concerned about them. Lord Jesus, we thank you that of the increase of your government and peace, there will be no end and you ultimately will reign on David's throne forever. And we, we say, Lord, hasten the day. Maranatha, Lord, bring that day closer and help us as we try and think wisely and pray wisely in the here and now. Help us, give us wisdom and insight to inform us in our thoughts and prayers. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what I want to do is uh, to think through, uh, probably in three chunks, <laughs> you've heard me preach enough before, most of you have anyway, three chunks, um, but ha- just talk for a bit about how we understand what's happening, so how to understand it, and then talk a bit about how to think about it, which is a, a little bit more of a sort of trying to bring in some theology to bear and some biblical reflection on how we should think about what's going on, and then I want to finish by talking about how we pray about it, and I've got a particular passage in Scripture that I hope will help you as it's helped me to pray for the whole situation uh, that's unfolding and has been since the 7th of October. So that's sort of how we understand it. There's a bit of context, some maps, a little bit of history, but not loads, partly my expertise, partly I, I think some of you already know a lot more about this than me. Um, but how to understand it, and then how to think about it, and then I think the most important thing really, how to pray about it. Chances are that there might be one or two of us who are involved in international diplomacy and aid and direct action relating to what's going on. There might be more than one or two, but it's probably not many. All of us, on the other hand, are called to pray. And so I really, that's where I'd love to get to, actually, to serve us. And then we'll have time for questions afterwards. So that's just a sort of quick summary of where I think we're going. I'm going to start with some maps. I'm going to try and keep this, you know, light and visual, um, because I think this just is a way of telling the story. It's not the only one, but this is, some of us will know loads more than I'm saying, and maybe a lot more than me about some of this stuff. Um, but I just want to tell the story, tell, if you like, the most recent history of this part of the world through a few maps. Some of this will be very familiar, some it won't. So we have map, first one up. Okay, so we are now at the end of World War I and the Ottoman Empire, which is effectively, the Holy Land had been under the Ottoman Empire for 400 years. So from about 1520-ish until the end of the First World War. And at the end of the First World War, the imperial powers who won the war, which includes Britain, but obviously also includes France and the US and so on, have to decide what are we going to do about, of all of the, all of the lands that have now been, you know, conquered, conquered nations, some of them we need to continue to rebuild as a nation state, which is what happens to, say, Germany, and others are empires that are now have just, are collapsing, and we're very concerned about what might happen. Some of that is imperialism in its normal guise, to be honest, and we probably, many of us will have enough awareness of that to not need to go into that, but some of it is also a concern about what happens to the minorities when these places collapse. So it's not all, I don't think it was just an oil grab, if I can put it like that. I think some of it is, um, but at this point, oil is not the primary driver of the economy anyway. But I think some of it is what's happening to the Armenians. So when the Ottoman Empire collapses as a massive genocide against the Armenians, which I think causes a number of Western powers to go, ooh, we can't just sort of leave this whole part of the world to their own devices. There's some greed in there as well. The 
there's some ambition in there. It's, all, it's complicated, but that's where I'm starting the modern story. So 100 years ago, pretty much 100 years ago, almost to the day, actually. Um, and September the 29th, so my birthday, 1923, I think is the moment that the British Empire then formally adopted this and became the largest it ever got, uh, just, which is just before it started collapsing. And basically they divided into British mandate and French mandate and then they allocate what we now call, or we at the time called Palestine and Transjordan. So that's the state at the end of World War I. So the early 1920s remains like that through to the start of the Second World War. And... Some of us know the history of Lawrence of Arabia and how that all feeds into all of this as well. But we can leave Lawrence and his, you know, his antics for now. Fast forward to the next slide. The UN, then at the end of the Second World War, comes up with a plan to partition, and annoyingly, the shady areas have not come across clearly on this map, which I thought, and that's my fault for not checking how the shading, because there is, ah, there's nothing I can do about it now. There is a, there is a shady area. Can you see it at all? Oh, you can. All oh, right, you just got better eyes than I have. On the, that screen there, it looks very clear to me, but on this one here, it looks very, very vague. Um, but there's a sort of, oh, the lights have been ceremonially dimmed. Thank you. Um, and so basically, the UN comes up with a partition plan and says we need to, we need to find a homeland for the Jews following what's happened uh, in the Second World War and the, obviously, horrible events of the Holocaust. And we think that we can partition this land, which of course was at, the, at this point was effectively part of the British Empire, um, and, but we think we can form a, a partition and form new states, the nation Transjordan, which now is similar, but not the same as what we, uh, what we would now call Jordan. And so they came up with a partition plan to do that. And that then became effectively, that was proposed um, and then it, it, it was rejected by the Arab peoples at the time who said, no, that's, that's, we're not happy with that arrangement. Um, and what happened is, towards the, in 1948, as Israel effectively says, we are now going to function like a nation state, they are attacked by the surrounding neighbours, and you can kind of see why, and it's a complicated, very painful process, and we'll have different takes on what happened. But in 1949, next map... I feel like Chris Whitty with the, you know, next slide, please. Um, uh, then the armistice lines effectively resolve like this. And this map is now probably a lot more familiar to us. If we look at that now, you go, oh, yeah, that's pretty close to the formal borders that exist today. And so this was really the armistice line. So they had Gaza, which was then administered by Egypt. So you had the West Bank, which is then administered by Jordan. Um, and then you have the, what is the rest of the nation state of Israel, which obviously looks very large. But bear in mind that in, it, almost everywhere, in fact, south of the word Israel is almost entirely desert. So the, the land is, you know, is not equally populated. So obviously a lot more people live in the more fertile areas um, as it's true anywhere. Uh, there's a couple of nice resort towns down here, by the way. I've actually been snorkeling in the Red Sea in December there. I'm just throwing it out there. It's a beautiful, I wouldn't go there now if I were you, but it's a very beautiful country and, um, um, and one that I know a number of us were planning to visit even a month ago, weren't we? And it sadly had to be cancelled. Um, so those are the armistice lines as a result of that battle. Now, formally, nobody at, that, nobody at this point, nobody, there's no arbiter that can just say, that's it, now we've defined the borders. And that's, to this day, still an issue. As you may know, that the UN doesn't formally recognise, but we don't, as Britain, formally don't recognise Palestine as a state. We treat it like one in various ways, but don't formally recognise it as such. And that's a part of the history, which is really, this is an armistice line, which has been hardened for long enough that it's become, it's functioned like a border. Okay, the next slide. Um, and then after the 1967 war is a big, you know, the, the, the six-day war, it's often called, in basically six days, the, the surrounding Arab nations and Israel fight 
for literally six days. And in the course of that, Israel takes, you know, grabs four significant sections of surrounding territory. Um, so the Sinai Peninsula, which is all this bit down here, which will be known from our Bible studies, apart from anything else, you know, that area, Gaza, the West Bank, and the Golan Heights, which are, at the time were part of Syria. And those are effectively what Israel looks like after the 1967 war. Next slide, six years later, there is the Yom Kippur War, which sets off the global oil crisis. But I wanted to show you this as well. And so this is after the Israel-Egypt peace treaty, which isn't resolved until 1982. Uh, we have the three sections, which are now no longer formally part of the Jewish state, but they would be administered more locally. But you still have Gaza, you still have West Bank, still have Golan Heights. But I wanted to put this chart up as well, because although that looks like the borders are sort of fairly, we've given back the land that you, you, know, you had, there is a significant difference, and this is part of the problem in particularly Gaza, which is incredibly densely populated and very poor relative to the nation around it, which is just a reality that is obviously a big part of what's going on in that part of the world at the moment. Before all of those maps and all of that, obviously you've still got, you've got another 3,000 years of history getting us even to this point um, with, you go about right back to the, to the Bible and you find actually in Bible times both Israelites and Phoenicians who later called Palestinians, effectively we, we, in the Bible it's usually written as Philistines but it's the same word, it's the, the Romans then called it Syria Palestina which we would now say Palestinians but the Philistines and the Israelites are li living in the land in the late Bronze Age, early Iron Age and fighting as we know, I mean, this is David and Goliath it's you know, the stories of 1 and 2 Samuel and Judges are set in this period in conflict between these two peoples who are still there and as we'll see later they go back further still back to the time of Abraham and so this has got a very long history. I mean, you can start the clock in... Well, it depends when you start the story, right? If you started in, 20, in 1923, you end up going, oh, this is basically a mess of the collapse of empires and the British getting involved, and it is. And if you start the story in 1948, you can say this is because Israel tried to take over this land and there's loads of Arabic peoples already living there and they didn't want to be displaced. And it is. And if you looked at it through the lens of 1973, you'd say this is because the Arab nations all ganged up on Israel and attacked them. And it is. And you could go right back three or 4,000 years and find other explanations. It's just really sticky. And through the biblical period, this piece of land was partly, obviously, owned ter territorially under the control. If we just go to the next slide under the control of the tribes of Israel when they first arrived. This is now a Bible map, um, which is obviously much more zoomed in on this particular bit of the world, but the Dead Sea should help you get your bearings. But this is the allocation of the tribal lands in the book of Joshua. Um, but obviously, it's not under the control of the Israelite nation for the whole time at, at all. It, it falls to the, you know, the Assyrians come in in the 8th century. That was, if you remember our Hosea series, that's the context in that period. Um, and then it's under the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, all the way through, say, Roman rule. Then through to the Umayyad Caliphate is the first Islamic conquerors. And then it's under the Abbasids for another two or three hundred years. And then it's under the Mamluks, and then it's for a while under the Crusaders. And then it's under the Mamluks, and then it's under the Ottomans. So it has been... Well, a fact I heard and thought was fascinating was somebody had done the maths and said that this piece of land has been invaded on average every 44 years in the last 4,000, which is pretty staggering. And that's before what had happened, what's happened in the last, you know, couple of, you know, last few weeks. 
So you can, it's a complex story. We all know that. That may not have even helped you very much. You say, man, that sounds like a very tricky situation. And as I say, there's lots of detail I've skipped there. But that's a little bit of how we got to where we are today. So that's one of the things I wanted to frame, just some maps to help us get the, a bit of the story. And what, ha- what all of that history does is it means that all of us are going to look at what's happening there through different pairs of lenses. We're going we're gonna to see what's happening through particular stories that are particularly well-known to us, including the Bible, but sometimes even just in the world as a whole. So obviously, if you read what's happening there through the lens of anti-Semitism and the history of anti-Semitism in the West and particularly through the church for the last pretty much the whole of the last 2,000 years, the sort of conflict between Christian believers and the Jews started within the New Testament and has continued since. If you read it mostly through that lens, then you will see Hamas as being really sort of like the Nazis. You'll say these are people hell-bent on destroying the Jews. Some of you may have seen the interviews of Palestinian uh, Hamas officials saying, yes, we, we want to do this over and over again. We want to destroy them. That's, that's what we're here to do. Almost quite matter-of-fact, as if that's a policy objective. And if you read it through that lens, you see this is like the, this, what's happened on the 7th of October is like the Holocaust. It's like, it's, it's like the most virulent attempt to stamp out the Jews. And it is up there in comparison with all of those other terrible pogroms and so on. And, and I think in many ways it is. If you read the same, you could read the same story and put, a, put on different glasses. Say, okay, well, just take off the anti-Semitism glasses and put on the colonialist glasses. You say, actually, I could read the, tell the whole story very differently. I could say, this is what happens when colonizing powers take over land that doesn't belong to them, that other people are already living there and start apportioning its resources and start apportioning its fertile land to their people and its less fertile land to other people and over time driving people into smaller and smaller settlements until they really don't have a way to make a living. And again, you could tell the story through those lenses as well. And the odd thing, the position that we're in, I think, as the church, is to say, as, I'm a, as, you know, as many of us are, a British Christian, I'd say my history is partly, my people's history is partly a history of anti-Semitism against the Jews and partly history of colonialism against people who've been living in their land for a long time and driving them off because I think it is what suits my policy objectives. So I, I, I don't feel guilty. I, just, I don't think you can be guilty of things you didn't do, but I am aware that I and my people, the people we represent in large part, are complicit to some degree in both of those stories. And that also makes it complicated. And so what, I think we, we put both of those lenses on, and it's almost helpful for us to see it in each of those ways, and then to put on the humanitarian lenses and say... Well, even just almost forget the prehistory of all of this. There are, it's an utter human tragedy on the ground on both sides. And best guesses that I checked yesterday what they think the most up to date figures are. Israel recently revised down the figures that they thought had been killed, but they think that 1,200 people ish were killed on the 7th of October. And what, from what we hear, there's around 13,000 people who have died so far in Gaza. And both of those are humanitarian tragedies. And we don't, I don't think we just get to go, oh, well, let's put them on a chart and see which is worse. I don't think, to be honest, wars don't work like that. Every person is an utter tragedy, and I think we have to see both of them. And I guess, like me, your heart breaks for all that's happening, and many of us reach simply a place of desperation and helplessness, and God, what on earth can you do? 
But that's, that's the sort of bit of, a bit of background, and it's, it's not light. I trust you knew that when you came to a seminar on this, but that, that's, I think we have a short-term, a way I found helpful when I read another writer making this point, that we have to mingle a very short-term compassion for the, what's happening right now in particular hospitals and patches of land in Gaza with actually a, what I think is a long-term concern for the, the history of both the Arab peoples in the area and the history of the Jewish people. And those of us who've got Jewish or Arabic or Palestinian, perhaps friends, certainly if we've got Muslim friends, we'll see both, both groups will read what's happening, obviously through the lens of their experience. But I think some of what happens is we have to see that there is a long-term threat, actually, in this, in this patch of land, almost no matter what happens, in the immediate short term. And so it could seem like the easiest thing to do is just, well, if we could just put a plaster over this now, then we could just give it time to work itself out. But there are, there are long-term threats to both of these people, and, of course, people in our own city on both sides. Initially, I think... Palestinian and Muslim people, now probably more prominently Jewish people who feel threatened, understandably, by a lot of what's been said in the public square and then feel like they're being silenced if they're not allowed to protest and all those sorts of dynamics. So it's very, very complicated. Um, I trust we know that. So that's, how, that's a little bit of background understanding, I think, on what's going on. And we could talk about... We could talk wherever you want to go in the questions, really, but I, I hope that most of us are more like, what do we do? What does the Bible say? What are we going to do to pray? How do we engage? But I wanted to give that context best I could. Turn to the person next to you and say, man, that was heavy. Okay. So, how to think about it. So what sort of thing, how do, we, how do we think constructively about what's going on? So I think we've got to think carefully about two things particularly when we put on, we'd say, well, okay, the, the political historical lenses, I'm going to put those off for a moment and I'm going to try and look at this through biblical theological lenses, what do I do now? What, what kind of things should I be looking for? And two things in particular that I know people in this church are, are wrestling with and have wrestled with, and there'll probably be many others that will come out. One is, how should we think about the land promise in the Bible? And the other is, how should we think about war? Which are two massive, probably the two massive issues that Christians theologically will want to, you know, there's all sorts of other questions about, you know, do you want a humanitarian pause or a ceasefire? And how does that, all those sorts of things, which I'm not going to get into um, but this, you can stand back and say, does the Bible say anything about this patch of land now? And how should, well, it clearly says a lot about this patch of land, but what do we do with that now? And a lot of this is going to go back to, if you, you've got your Bible and you want to open it to Genesis chapter 12. Um, but in Genesis chapter, we'll read a longer passage from Genesis in due course. But for now, the, this God's promise, which really a lot of the Bible revolves around, is in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7, where God says to Abram, who, before he's become Abraham, to your seed, I will give this land. I'm going to give this, this patch of land, and the, this land is even a bit contested because it takes different shapes and sizes as the story goes on. But this land, you can see, I'm going to give this to you and your seed. And so what Christians have to do is to, I, I think often people say, well, does that promise rely on them being believers? Or does that promise get nullified when... People, when people reject God? And that's a valid question that people can walk through. 
But I think perhaps two slightly sharper questions for us when we read a promise like that, and it keeps being repeated in the Old Testament, to your seed, Abraham, I will give this land. I think we have to ask two questions. One is, who is the seed now? And the second is, what is the land now? Who is the seed and what is the land? Just if, you, if you would, just jump with me. If you, again, if you've got your Bible, just jump with me to Romans chapter 4 and verse 13. I want to look at the land first, because this is a fascinating passage that I think really helps us understand how... So Paul has this question, right? Paul is a, a Jewish, Greek-speaking, Asian guy. So he has got this sort of multicultural background in himself, as we know. And so he is trying to work out, how do I talk about the gospel, mindful of, I'm very proud of my Jewish heritage, in a largely Gentile world? Romans is one of the letters where he does that. And he gets into this. And in Romans chapter 4 and verse 13, he describes the promise to Abraham like this. For the promise to Abraham and his seed that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promise to Abraham and his seed that he would be heir of the world didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And what Paul is doing in his larger argument is trying to explain really why we're justified by faith rather than by works of the law. But in doing it, he says the promise way back when to Abraham at the start of the story, the promise was actually a promise to him and his seed that they would inherit the world. The Greek word cosmos, which we still use today. Um, to mean the sort of the universe almost, rather than, whereas it's not the land, the, the word that you would normally use in Greek for, the la- for just a, a bit of land. So the, the country, you would expect Paul to use a different word, but he doesn't. He's, he uses the word cosmos. He says Ab- the promise to Abraham was bigger than simply this bit of land. It was actually a promise that he and his seed would inherit the world. So he doesn't make the promise smaller Sometimes Christians do that and say, oh, no, no, the promise to Abraham only applies to this little bit of land. Paul says that he makes the promise bigger. He says, actually, the promise to Abraham and his family was that they'd be heirs of the world. That's important to have in mind, I think, when you're thinking through, what's the Bible say about the land? It's actually universalized to mean the world. And the second question you have to ask, what's the land? And you also have to ask, who's the seed? So if God makes a promise to Abraham and says, to you and your seed, I will give this land. And we're saying, okay, what, what Paul says he means is, to you and your seed, I'm going to give this, this land as a token, really, of giving you the whole world, and you're going to inherit all of it. The next question you have to ask is, well, who's the seed? What does, he mean, what does God mean, and what does Paul and Jesus and John and Peter and so on think God means when he promises the, the seed that they will inherit? Does that mean every Jewish person? Does that mean some Jewish people? Does that mean everybody who believes in Jesus? Does that mean Jesus himself? Does it mean someone else? Who are we talking about? And that is something that Paul takes up in, at length in Galatians chapter 3. And so again, if you could just turn to Galatians chapter 3, I'm going to read verse 16 and then I'm going to jump down. I just don't want to don't drown you in Bible because these are complex issues, but just two, two verses to read to help us here. Galatians 3.16, again, Paul referring to the promise. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. Or some translations will have offspring or descendants. The promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. It doesn't say and to seeds, referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, which is Christ. 
which is a bold move from Paul. He's saying the promise God made to Abraham and his seed to inherit the land is actually a promise to Abraham and his seed who is Christ that they will inherit the world. That's what Paul is saying. You might say, well, I'm not sure I agree with Paul, but you know, that's another discussion. We won't get into that now. But that, that's how Paul, in, with Christ-like spectacles, is trying to read the story of the Old Testament promise. And if you then go down, it's a much more elaborate argument, which we obviously did a series on Galatians uh, this time last year, um, and no doubt got into some of these issues there. But then go down to verse 27. It says, for as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. Now remember, Paul has just said the promise is to Abraham and his seed, who is Christ. And he says, and you, through faith, have put on Christ. You've effectively become part of the seed who inherits the promise. And then he was more explicit in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise, which is where the Old Testament really begins. So what Paul is doing in those two passages, and I think a number of others, is he's universalizing the promise to Abraham, and he's including Gentiles who believe in Jesus in it. He's saying, simultaneously, he's saying, God made a promise to Abraham and his seed to inherit the land, and the land is now the world, and the seed is now Christ and all who are in Christ through faith. And that won't be the perspective of everybody in here, which is fine, and we could talk more about that. I'm very happy to. I think these are important issues, and they're very difficult to get right in a short period of time. But I think that what we, the case I'm trying to make there is that what Paul is seeing happening in Christ is that the, the promise to Abraham does not refer to the, the biological great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren of Abraham inheriting a small patch of land in the Middle East. He's actually saying that Christ, ultimately the promise to Abraham was that Christ and all who are in Christ, Jew and Gentile, will inherit the land and indeed the world through faith in Christ which obviously means that the way we read events in the Middle East differs because I have, and some of, some of us, how many people here have been to a church in the, in, the, in, the, in the Holy Land, if I can call it that for now? How many people have been to church in the Holy Land? So actually quite a few of us. Wow, that's more than I thought. Um, and so can you just, how many of us went to Jewish churches? Probably Hebrew, Hebrew churches or Russian Jews? How many of us went to Arab churches? How many went to mixed churches? A mixture of both. How many have got no earthly idea? <laughs> we just went to church and we didn't understand what was happening. But I mean, I've been to like, I've, I've been to, not that this means I'm right about any of this, but I've been to a church where literally the opening song, like we might sing, I don't know, Praises Rising or 10,000 Reasons or something. Their opening song in Hebrew is Shema Israel, Shema Israel, as in the Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 in Hebrew. It's Hero Israel, Hero Israel, Hero Israel, the Lord is one. And they're all singing and jamming with their guitars. And it's like, so I've been to the proper full-on Jewish church experience. And then I've, been, I've preached in an Arab-Israeli church in the Holy Land, in, in Lud, or you know, Lid, um, just near sort of Tel Aviv, and preached there to, and where there's no Hebrew speaker there, and they're all, they probably speak Hebrew, but they're Arab speak, Arabic speakers, um, and they're all Christians as well. And in that setting, of course, what's happened, what, what we now know is that people in, there are people in Gaza who are in Christ to whom the promise Paul is talking about in Galatians 3 applies. And there are people who live in Israel who are ethnically Jewish to whom Paul would say the promise does not apply 
because they're not in Christ. So that we're in, it's a complex issue again, but what I don't think we can do is to say Christians are entitled to this bit of land or Jewish people by divine fiat are entitled to this bit of land now that Christ has come. And what Paul does in many of his letters is to use imagery to try and help us understand how that's all part of God's big plan. He talks about the tree as well and says, well, this is Israel's tree and as Gentiles you've been grafted into it. And so my Arab brothers and sisters who I've preached to in a church in the Holy Land, I've been grafted into the tree and in a sense, they, well, they, in every sense, they are now heirs according to the same promise. So what I don't think we can do is, for instance, to go to Old Testament texts that talk about Israel um, attacking Gaza and say, there you go, that's what we should be in support of now. Because... For a start, there's lots of texts in which God says he's going to destroy Israel as well in the Old Testament, and, or, you know, and that, of course, happens, including from Jesus himself. But also, the, the promises are now read through a Christ-shaped filter from Paul and others to see how the promises have been fulfilled in him, and therefore the promises are for all who are in Christ, not just for ethnic Jews. So we have to think about the land promise. And then we also very much more briefly have to think about war. What do we think? Some of us will probably have different convictions on this. And some of us would say Christians can and should go to war so long as the war is fought by the best standards we have and so long as war is fought justly. It's often called just war theory. And others in the room probably say, no, I don't think Christians should fight in wars. I don't think Christians should take up deadly force against anybody. I think that shouldn't be any disciples path and then there'd be others of us again who might say I'm not even quite sure what I think about that but there's a difference here between a nation state and what I as a Christian might be called to do and all of those complexities we need to think through as well I think for my part it can be helpful to remember that whether you are a pacifist or whether you believe in just war that in both situations the standard for going to war is very high if you have a, anything close to a Christian reflection so on, on these issues, and the, the great theologians who've tried to make a case for why you can occasionally go to war have tried to make it as hard as possible for Christians to do that. And so a sort of, well, they got us, so we're going to get them back, is not, that's not Christ-like thinking. Um, obviously, it's the Sermon on the Mount, is do not resist the one who's evil. That doesn't mean necessarily that you can never take any political, the state is never allowed to defend its own citizens. And some of us, even in the room, probably old enough to remember the last time our nation was threatened by a power who was trying to wipe us out. So that I'm not, not trying to make it too simple, but at the same time, there's a difference between what Christians can and should do and think about war and currently what nation states are empowered to do. And so we've got to think about a land promise and we've got to think about war. And those are the two things I think helpful for us to wrestle with a bit and we can maybe come back and talk about that. But I want to finish by talking about how, finish the talky bits. Um, so I'll try and finish that for about quarter two by talking about how we pray. And here I want to try and give you a bit of hope and a bit of the heart of God. And I wonder, could you turn, now we will read properly, Genesis chapter 21. And this to me has been a comfort to me since the moment this conflict started, actually. I, um, I remember with, I had think I, what, what was the day of the week? Was it sort of Saturday morning we found out about it, was it? 
And then I remember, I think I was leading various sites in prayer on this issue on Sunday morning. So I had to kind of quite quickly go, how am I going to pray? And I have found this chapter such a comfort. And as it happens, I was very moved by this because it was the, the church I, my kids go to a lot of the time in Eastbourne. Was, they're going through a series on Abraham. So they were looking at this. But also my son, by coincidence, uh, my seven-year-old, is going through his action Bible. And he was on this story the day after the war had broken out. And so I was very moved, to say the least, reading to my son about Abraham and his two sons and how he felt about them in light of the conflict. So this is Genesis 21. Abraham has already had a son, Ishmael, and he's about to have a second one, Isaac, and there are going to be difficulties between them, as we know. Now, the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he'd said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he'd promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac, which means laughter, to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I've borne him a son in his old age. So you have now have two boys in this family. One of them is a teenager and the other one has just been born and the young teen, probably around 13, has until now been the presumptive heir of everything. All of Abraham. And Abraham's a rich guy. We know that. He's got 318 fighting men who he can use to go and rescue Lot when Lot gets into trouble. So he is a, he's like a, a, a sheikh. Some people call him that in Genesis. That's why he's Abraham. So Ishmael lived his life until now thinking, I'm going to get it all. But now this little rat's been born, and I don't, I'm not very keen on that. And then, of course, there are plenty of other stories in this, like, like this in the Bible where older brothers and younger brothers come to blows about inheritance and many parables and all that. But we won't get into all of that now, much as I'd like to. Um, so we have a, a, a sort of implicit rivalry, and that rivalry very quickly turns to conflict. Verse 8. The child, that's Isaac, grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. We were joking about this text recently. Like, you know, when we have baby Thanksgivings. Maybe in, in their day, they just had, they had weaning festivals. Like, do you do that? You'd bring through your child. They were on solids. Let's have a celebration. It kind of slightly, sounds to us like a slightly strange thing to do. Um, but the child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, which in their day would have been around the age three or four. So we've now got Ishmael's 13 when Isaac's born-ish. They're now probably 17 and Isaac's maybe four. That's what's roughly. Well, we don't know for certain, but roughly. But Sarah saw, so Isaac's mum, saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking. And actually that word in the original is the word laughing. So this boy laughter has become a laughing stock. And Sarah, the mother of Isaac, is very offended at the way Hagar and particularly Ishmael are laughing at her little boy. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance of my son Isaac. So this is, rivalry has now turned to conflict, open conflict. Sarah is fuming. My son is going to inherit. How dare that slave woman? And you think, man, you were the person who suggested Abraham sleep with her. Like, what? Well, you know, no one comes out well out of this, and possibly from, in a way, Hagar, actually. No one comes out well from this story. But this is the, this is the I'm going into this, as, you, as I'm sure you know, because this is the origin story of all of those maps and all of this conflict. So there is conflict. 
then, but look at God. It's the reason I find this so beautiful for, for, to help us in prayer and devotionally to help us, I hope, is because of the heart of God towards both of these boys. That's really where we're going. Verse 11. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, don't be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, which sounds like God's just taken sides with Isaac, Israel, Jews over and against Hagar, Ishmael, Arabs. Right? If you stop there. Then he says, verse 13, I will make the son of the slave into a nation also because he is your seed or he is your offspring. That is, Isaac is the child of promise. He's the miracle child. He represents the child of the spirit, the child of faith. And he is going to be the one from whom the Jewish people come and from whom the Messiah comes. That's true. But I'm also going to make Ishmael into a great nation as well because he's your seed too. That's where God's... And, and this is, I think, the very first inkling we get of what people now call the two-state solution. I'm clearly not talking about political lines here, but this is... No, I have, in God's heart, God's heart is big enough for both of these boys to become great nations and for me to seek to bless both of them and for me to regard both of them as your seed, Abraham. Which no one would see coming if you were reading the story to this point, I think. Early the next morning... Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And she sat there and she began to sob. And I think it's one of the most moving passages in the Bible because any mother who's even just thought about what would I do if I knew my child was dying and some of us have experienced that tragedy will just, it will resonate with anyone I think who's got a pulse. This is a moving story. But if you stand back from it and think for a moment, this, how extraordinary the Bible is, that the Bible is telling us a story that is intended to absolutely max out our empathy for the boy who is the rival of the, our people. Like everybody who wrote this, everybody who repeated this and copied it for hundreds if not thousands of years was a Jewish person or an Israeli, uh, Israelite saying, these are our people, we're Isaac people. And Ishmael is our great rival. They're the people who raid and attack us on camels and capture people and take them into slavery. And yet here in the origin story of our whole nation is a story which is intended to move us deeply about how much we should care and how much God cares about Ishmaelites, the, what we would now call the Arabs or the ancestor of Muslim peoples in that part of the world and so on. It's just extraordinary. And I think it's moving anyway. The idea that you're, you're with this woman, aren't you, as she wanders off and just thinks she's left her boy there and now she's gone a bow shot away. What's that, 100 yards? I don't know how far you can fire a bow, but something like that. And she says, I just can't do it. I can't watch him die, Lord. If I stand over here and he stays under the bush, we'll both die because we're running out of water. But at least I won't have to see it. It's incredibly moving and it reflects something of the heart of God that this story happened far less that it was repeated and copied by Jewish people who were at war often with these Ishmaelites for centuries. It's right in their origin story too and ours. Verse 17, God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's the matter, Hagar? 
don't be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was listening in the, living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. So this is God's compassion now, not just felt in the story of, wow, that's moving. Let me not look on the death of the boy. But that's God saying, I'm now going to provide. I'm going to provide water. I'm going to provide my presence. And as Ishmael goes off, I'm going to make him a great nation. And the Lord was with him. And once again, that promise, I'm going to make him into a great nation, it's reiterated, which in the Bible means God's definitely going to do it. And it's not just a one, God had a moment. It's like he's trying, the writer's trying to get us to see this is a commitment that God has made. And God's compassion, even just God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. What has all of that got to do with prayer? It really helps me to know that the heart of God is big enough for both of these peoples. That God's heart is big enough. I'm not saying this means solves all of our policy questions. Happily, that's not my job and it's probably not yours. But it shows me that the heart of God is big enough to extend deep. I am going to make, this is my seed, this is my child of promise, compassion to Isaac. And deep, I'm going to make him into a great nation. I'm going to be with him and I'm going to provide for his needs in the desert. Compassion for Ishmael. And we're still in the same patch of land. I mean, Beersheba, if we showed it on the map, is incredibly near the Gaza Strip. It's exactly where this stuff is happening. It's still in Israel, but it's very near. And this incident that's happening with bushes and wells and deserts and skins of water, nearly 4,000 years on, is still reverberating. And the heart of God is for both of these little boys. It's for both of these women. It's for both of these peoples. And yes, God has said, my special purposes in Christ are going to be worked out through this seed, not that one. I'm not saying they're the same, but I'm going to make this one into a great nation as well and I love him deeply and I will provide for his needs and be with him and make him great too. And so when I come to pray, I have that heart of God in mind, knowing that God's heart is not solely for, as some of us would, we wear the Holocaust lenses, we say, my, God's heart's for Israel. You wear the colonial lenses, your God's heart's for Palestine. And actually to say, God's heart's for all of these people and particularly I've found as you pray, that his heart for the children. It's just, I mean, I think that's the most emotive aspect of war, isn't it? You just, it's the pictures that move us or the, the stories of the people who have been, I don't know, go into all the gruesome details, but killed as children or babies and say, look, just Hagar's cry. I just, Lord, I cannot watch the death of the child. Please don't make me look at the death of another child. There's such a powerful prayer from the heart saying, Lord, please would you step in for the for the innocents, for the people who are far too young to know anything about what's going on? Would you bring peace for them? And so I wonder if we could just, just conclude this little section, even just by praying together. I imagine that that's probably what we want to do in our hearts anyway. So can we just stand together? Some of us will want to verbalise this and some of us will just want to reflect and either is fine. I'll lead us, but you should feel free to kind of join in and pile in out loud or to just sit quietly. Either is fine. But let's come before the Lord and just ask for, we'll have questions in a moment, but let's come before the Lord and ask for his help. 
Holy Father, we come to you as so many people have over the years for this piece of land and the people who live there and said, we do not know, like Jehoshaphat, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We cannot fathom, Lord, how peace and hope can come to this patch of land or the people who live there. We pray right now for people in the hospital in Gaza City. We pray now for the grieving families on both sides of the border. We pray for the Israeli families in Ashdod and other places nearby. We pray for the Palestinian families in Gaza City and many other places. We ask for the, co- the comfort from the God of all comfort to reach out and take hold of these people and treasure them and cradle them in your arms. We pray for our brothers and sisters in churches in Gaza, sheltering people from military invasion and rocket fire as we speak. We pray for boldness, courage, and non-retaliation in their heart, a desire to love their enemy. We pray for Jewish Christians, again, some known to me, who have been called up to the army. Again, Lord, for compassion and grace and mercy to rise in their hearts towards those who they have been caused to call enemies. And Lord, we pray for the children. Lord, we just ask, may we not have to look on the death of any more children. We pray, Lord, even that these little percolating ceasefire hints we're getting from what happened in Qatar yesterday. We pray, Lord, would there be a, would there be a stop? Would there be a, not just a pause, not just a break in fighting, but a stop? Lord, we pray that you would, dis, you would destroy the works of the devil who want to kill and destroy and sow more and more division. And we pray that you'd bring peace somehow, Lord. You alone know, literally you alone know. But God, please, would you bring peace somehow and justice and hope to these broken people? Lord, grieving mothers, grandparents, children too young to understand, Lord, have mercy, we pray. Deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen.